The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. There are thousands upon thousands of amazing, helpful books out there. My goal is to read them and share how we can implement the wisdom to improve our lives, the lives of the animals, and even help save the world. Welcome to Zoo Notable, taking wisdom from self-improvement, conservation, and animal-related books, and using them to help us become the best versions of ourselves. Whether you are an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and life, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Welcome to Zoo Notable, where we enrich our minds so we can spiral up as the best versions of ourselves for our families, our communities, and the planet. And today we're diving into a very meaningful book in my life, The Miracle of Mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I've been meaning to share an insightful and impactful book on meditation for quite some time. And with the recent news of Thich Nhat Hanh's passing on January 22nd, I do believe that time is now. Thich Nhat Hanh lived an extraordinary life. Born in 1926, he spent his life as a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He was a teacher, an author, poet, and a peace activist. Thich Nhat Hanh was responsible for popularizing mindfulness in the West and introduced countless people to Buddhist ideas and practices. He lived in France in exile during, since the 1960s during the Vietnam War, but returned to his Buddhist temple in Hu, Vietnam in 2019 to prepare for his death. Thich Nhat Hanh was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1967 by no other than Martin Luther King Jr. himself. He was awarded a Global Peace Prize in 2019 for his years of traveling and teaching the world mindfulness practices and nonviolent ways of life. The miracle of mindfulness is a powerful lesson that encapsulates Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching and philosophy. I cannot wait to share some of the insight I garnered from this book, so let's dive straight in. Big idea number one is unlimited time for yourself. Quote, Alan and his seven-year-old son, Joey, visited me. After some disruptions from the child, Joey put on his jacket and went outside to play with the neighbor's child. Alan and I spoke about family life. Alan said, I've discovered a way to have a lot more time. In the past, I used to look at my time as if it were divided into several parts. One part I reserved for Joey. Another part was for Sue, his wife. Another part was, for, was with Anna, his infant daughter. Another part for housework. The time left over I considered my own. I could read, write, do research, go for walks. But now, I try not to divide time into parts anymore. I consider my time with Joey and Sue as my own time. When I help Joey with his homework, I try to find ways of seeing his time as my own. I go through the lesson with him, sharing his presence and finding ways to be interested in what we are doing during that time. The time for him becomes my own time. The same with Sue. The remarkable thing is, now I have unlimited time for myself. And Thich Nhat Hanh opens his book with this short story, which illustrates the exact purpose and power of mindfulness in our everyday life. Who among us wouldn't want more time for ourselves? But who has time for ourselves when we're running around all day doing things for others? And if we spend all day practicing mindfulness, how do we find time to do all the work that needs to be done? 
How has someone like Alan managed to work, study with his son, take care of his daughter's diapers, and still practice mindfulness all at the same time? We can't practice mindfulness meditation while working. Or can we? And what Thich Nhat Hanh is telling us, or actually what his friend Alan is sharing with us, is readers, this, by being there with our families, our friends, our colleagues, we are creating time for ourselves. Now, I don't think that Thich Nhat Hanh is saying that we want to work, work, work and not take self-care days. Actually, I know that to be the opposite. But when we are at work, when we are with other people, we practice mindfulness and being completely present with those people. We are also working on ourselves. We are spending time on ourselves, which helps create a more stress-free environment for ourselves and for others around us. The answer to how we practice mindfulness in our day-to-day life is by practicing mindfulness in our day-to-day life. Quote, If while washing dishes we think only of the cup of tea that awaits us, thus hurrying to get the dishes out of the way as if they were a nuisance, then we are not washing the dishes to wash the dishes. What's more, we are not alive during that time we are washing the dishes. In fact, we are completely incapable of realizing the miracle of life while standing at the sink. If we can't wash the dishes, chances are we won't be able to drink our tea either. While drinking the cup of tea, we'll only be thinking of other things, barely aware of the cup in our hands. Thus, we are sucked away into the future, and we are incapable of actually living one minute of life. Now, this goes actually well hand in hand with big idea number two. When you wash the dishes, wash the dishes. Quote, when you are washing the dishes, washing the dishes must be the most important thing in your life. Just as when you're drinking tea, drinking tea must be the most important thing in your life. And everything in your life can be a meditation when we practice mindfulness in our daily activities. Focus on the task at hand. Be as mindful as you possibly can and as present in the moment with everything you do. Thich Nhat Hanh gives example of washing dishes and drinking tea. Now, as I was reading this, I immediately thought of my time as a zookeeper and one of the most anxiety-inducing thoughts, did I lock the gate? Now, I can't tell you how many times I had used to get my car and then go right back to my animal unit I'd been working to double-check my locks or calling a coworker to check my locks for me. It's like the whole, I, did I leave the oven on, but multiplied by, I don't know, like a thousand So I do know that some zookeepers have started taking photos of their locks. And while I love this idea, and if you haven't tried it, I think it's worth a shot to help you with lock anxiety, I wanted to share the idea I learned to help deal with lock anxiety for good. I actually practice being as mindful as I can in a day-to-day routine. At home, I practice being mindful when I turn the thermostat down. I practice mindfulness when I'm cooking. I'm completely and 100% present in the task at hand. When I practice deliberate mindfulness, I have found I don't have to remember if I locked the gate or if I wrote my records. I just, I know. I was completely present with myself when I did it. Thich Nhat Hanh suggests an exercise to get into the mindfulness habit. He suggests that we spend one day a week completely devoted to mindfulness. Now, if you're like me, you might be wondering, well, how in the hell did you do that? (laughs) So Thich Nhat Hanh tells us, while still lying in bed, begin slowly to follow your breath. Slow, 
long, and conscious breaths. Then slowly rise from the bed instead of turning out all at once as usual. Nourishing mindfulness by every motion. And once up, brush your teeth, wash your face, and do all your morning activities in a calm and relaxing way. Each movement done in mindfulness. Follow your breath, take hold of it, and don't let your thoughts scatter. Each movement should be done calmly. Measure your steps with quiet, long breaths. Maintain a half smile. Spend at least a half an hour taking a bath. Bathe slowly and mindfully so that by the time you have finished, you feel light and refreshed. Afterwards, you might do household work such as washing dishes, dusting and wiping off tables, scrubbing the kitchen floor, and arranging books on their shelves. Whatever the tasks, do them slowly and with ease and mindfulness. Don't do any task in order to get over to get it over with. Resolve to just do each job in a relaxed way with all your attention. Enjoy and be one with your work. The feeling that any task is a nuisance will soon disappear if it is done in mindfulness. So why practice this once a week? Why not once a month or just during our meditation practice? Well, that's because practicing during our normal routine throughout the day helps us develop that muscle memory, so to speak, so that when we need it, like when we are locking gates to animal enclosures or leaving the house, we can rely on our training and mindfulness. Our brain tells us to pay attention. It's easier to practice mindfulness in our day-to-day life when we, you guessed it, practice mindfulness in our day-to-day life. And big idea number three, walking the path of mindfulness. Quote, when you're walking along a path, you can practice mindfulness. Walking along a dirt path surrounded by patches of green grass, if you practice mindfulness, you will experience that path. You practice by keeping this one thought alive. I'm walking along the path leading into a village. And whether it's sunny or rainy, whether that path is dry or wet, you keep that one thought, but not just repeating it like a machine over and over again. Machine thinking is the opposite of mindfulness. If we are really engaged in mindfulness while walking along the path, then we will consider the act of each step we take as an infinite wonder, and a joy will open our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. Ah, we can practice mindfulness in our day-to-day lives, in every moment, being present and celebrating being fully alive. But it requires complete and absolute mindfulness. This isn't a factory or just going through the motions. The name of the book is The Miracle of Mindfulness, which means that there's something wonderful, awe-inspiring, and miraculous about being fully conscious and alive. We can't do that if we're just doing what we need to without thought. Now, in real life, we won't remember if we've turned off the stove, if we aren't mindful while we're, going, while we're in the kitchen. We won't be able to concentrate on the conversation at hand if we just go through the motions of pretending to listen. Instead of listening to respond, we hone in on listening to understand. It's also just more than just going through the motions versus being present. Thich Nhat Hanh tells us the difference between mindfulness meditation and being semi-conscious. Quote, sitting in mindfulness, both our bodies and minds can be at peace and totally relaxed. But this state of peace differs fundamentally from the semi-conscious state 
of mind that one gets while resting and dozing. Sitting in semi-consciousness, far from being mindful, is like sitting in a dark cave. In mindfulness, one is not only restful and happy, but alert and awake. The person who practices mindfulness should be no less awake than a driver of a car. If the practitioner isn't awake, he will be possessed by dispersion and forgetfulness, just as the drowsy driver is likely to cause a grave accident. And this reminds me of Emily Fletcher's comments on the purpose of meditation. She says in her book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, the point of meditation isn't to get good at meditation. The point of meditation is to get good at life. The Thich Nhat Hanh has one more example of how we can walk the path to mindfulness and thus a fuller, happier life. If we can practice being mindful and watching our breath, even with distractions, without getting frustrated or annoyed, we will accomplish much in our quest for peace, less anxiety, and relaxation. Thich Nhat Hanh recommends we practice our breath and being present in the moment when we feel irritation, when we are bored, and when we are distracted. He says, of course, walking alone on a country path is easier to maintain mindfulness. If there's a friend by your side, not talking but also watching his breath, then you can continue to maintain mindfulness without difficulty. But if the friend at your side begins to talk, it becomes a little more difficult. If in your mind you think, I wish this friend would quit talking so I could concentrate, you have already lost your mindfulness. But if you think instead, if they wish to talk, I will answer, but I will continue in mindfulness, aware of the fact that we are walking along this path together, aware of what we say, and I can continue to watch my breath as well. And before we continue on, a quick word from our sponsors. We have Anchor, again, the, the website that we are using to uh, to show, give you this wonderful podcast and ZooFit, my program to help you eat clean, live green, and train positive. And big idea number four is acknowledge our negative thoughts. Quote, during meditation, various feelings and thoughts may arise. If you don't practice mindfulness of the breath, these thoughts will soon lure you away from mindfulness itself. But the breath isn't simply a means by which to chase away such thoughts and feelings. Breath remains the vehicle to unite body and mind and to open the gate to wisdom. When a feeling or thought arises, your intention should be not to chase it away, even if by continuing to concentrate on the breath, the feeling or the thought passes naturally from the mind. The intention isn't to chase it away, hate it, worry about it, or be frightened by it. So what exactly should you be doing? Concerning such thoughts and feelings, simply acknowledge their presence. For example, when a feeling of sadness arises, immediately recognize it. A feeling of sadness has just arisen in me. If the feeling continues, continue to recognize it. A feeling of sadness is still in me. The essential thing is to not let any feeling or thought arise without recognizing it in mindfulness. Just like a palace guard who is aware of every face that passes through the front corridor. Now, for me, I used to absolutely despise meditation. I thought it was just pointless, or at least pointless for me. I couldn't keep my mind still, and I thought I was failing every time 
a stray thought entered my brain. Or, you know, when my mind went on those road trips far off the path I was trying to maintain with a mantra. Turns out, that's not the point of meditation. <laughs> and Thich Nhat Hanh tells us that these thoughts are natural. It's when we don't notice and bring the mi mind back to focus with our breath that things go awry. Now this reminds me again of Emily Fletcher's book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, when she says, thoughts are not the enemy. Remember that the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So please don't try to give your mind a command to be silent. Instead, know that those thoughts are okay. They're actually a useful part of the process. And once you have your trusty anchor, you, can, you have somewhere to come back to when you've noticed that you've taken a mental field trip. Now, I personally liken meditation to practicing station training with an animal. Now, station training is the practice of an animal sitting or positioning themselves in one particular spot, usually for the duration of a training session. With many animals, though, during the training session, they will hop off their station, check, out and check on a neighbor, approach the trainer, wander around the exhibit. Now, one might deduce that training, station training isn't working in these instances. The animal is not holding perfectly still. However, that's not the point of station training. The point is for the animal to immediately come back to its station when they're reminded that they've wandered off. We don't have to get upset with the animal for wandering. That's just what they do. We just have to ask the animal to go back to station. And meditation is just like that. We don't have to get upset when our mind wanders. That's just what minds do. They think involuntarily. We just have to focus and bring our mind back to the present with our breath and our acknowledgement. And big idea number five is the three questions. All right, folks, it is story time. This is a story by Tolstoy, which is adapted for Miracle of Mindfulness and then retold by moi. And this is the story of a great king. And it came to the ruler that all he needed in life was to answer these three questions. One, what is the best time to do each thing? Two, who are the most important people to work with? And three, what is the most important thing to do at all times? And from all over, wise counselors, priests, and advisors tried in vain to answer the questions. Some suggested planning each day, each month, each season, and so forth. Then everything could be done at its proper time. The king was urged to work with these same counselors, priests, and advisors. They were the most important people to work with. They reported that science was the most important thing. No, it was warfare. No, of course it's religion, said others. The king heard all this advice and was still confused. So he sought out a hermit in the wood who was rumored to be very wise and help those in need. The king rode out to the wood and with his entourage, but ordered them to stay put while he visited the hermit. When the king approached the hermit, he was busy tilling his garden. The king asked his questions. What is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? The hermit didn't reply, but went back to tilling. But the hermit was old, and the king saw him struggling. So the kind king offered to do some work for the hermit and allow the older man to rest. The king continued helping the hermit throughout the day without so much a word from the hermit. Towards the end of the day, the king asked his request one more time. What is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? And just as he spoke, 
A man came running out of the woods. He was holding a side and was badly injured. The king and the hermit reached the man, attended to the man's wounds, and helped the injured man to the hermit's bed, where the king made a delicious healing soup for the stranger. The man was incredulous. Your majesty, he said, you don't know me, but I know you. I was your sworn enemy. I wanted to attack you as you came back from the hermit, as you'd be unprepared. But you were here for so long, I decided to hunt you down. Your guards caught me and nearly killed me. I got away and came across you, and you took me in, healed me, and nursed me. I am forever in your debt. The king was surprised by how easy it had been to make a friend out of an enemy. They reconciled, and finally the king asked the hermit one last time, Do you have an answer to my questions? What is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? The hermit told the king that if he had not helped the hermit save the man's life, the king would be a very different person and wouldn't have learned the answer, which is a little bit different from hearing the answer. Remember that there is only one important time, and that is now. The present moment is the only time we have dominion. The most important person is always the person you are with, who is right before you. For who knows if you will have dealings with any other person in the future. And the most important pursuit is making the person standing at your side happy, for that alone is the pursuit of life. So there are two things that I derive from this story. One is the obvious lesson of being present in the moment and being as helpful as we can to the people around us. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you cannot serve your wife or your husband or child or parent, how are you going to serve society? And on that same frame, we must also take care of ourselves, for if we are not serving our own health and well-being, how can we serve our loved ones? How can we serve our community? The most important time is now. The most important person is the one you are with, and the most important thing to work towards is serving that person. The other quick lesson I got from this story is the difference between learning from life and just hearing wisdom. This Zoo Notable is mostly just, you know, my ramblings of ideas I get while reading books. And I certainly hope others find wisdom in my musings, but the real wisdom comes from living. So something that is mentioned here on Zoo Notable or in another book or from a presentation that sparks inspiration in you, don't just listen to that advice. Live it. Try it out. That's where the real learning comes into play. Then you will be pursuing your life to the fullest and discovering the miracle of mindfulness. Well, that's about all I have for this wonderful, enlightening book. If this book piqued your interest, you can check out Miracle of Mindfulness as well as other books by Thich Nhat Hanh at your local library or your local bookstore. Now, other books that touch on the subject of mindfulness include Emily Fletcher's Stress Less, Accomplish More, Eknath Esran's Meditation, and Mindfulness by Ellen Langer. So let's close off with a few quotes from the book and we'll sign off. These are all from Thich Nhat Hanh who says, Mindfulness frees us of forgetfulness and dispersion and makes it possible to live fully each minute of life. Mindfulness enables us to live. He also says, breath is the bridge which connects life to consciousness, which unites your body to your thoughts. Whenever your mind becomes scattered, use your breath as a means to take hold of your mind again. 
A friend mentioned a report that in Canada, people tried playing Mozart for their plants during the night. The plants grew more quickly than normal, and the flowers inclined toward the direction of the music. In wheat and rye fields, people were able to measure that the wheat and rye grew more quickly when listening to Mozart every day. I thought about the conference rooms where people argue and debate, where angry and reproachful words are hurled back and forth. If one placed flowers and plants in such rooms, chances are they would cease to grow. And finally, Thich Nhat Hanh says, When we are angry, we ourselves are anger. When we are happy, we ourselves are happiness. When we have certain thoughts, we are those thoughts. that's all I've got for this wonderful book. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated with you the most? And how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? And share some of your favorite books that you'd love to see a Zoo Notable on. A gigantic thank you to my patrons, Rochelle, Laura, Sarah, Liz, and Stephanie. Keep working on becoming the best version of yourself today, tomorrow, and forever. For you, your community, the animals, and the planet. Take care and I will see you all next time.